Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, I'd like to talk to you about Horus, the Egyptian god. Horus, the archetype. Horus. Some might say the god of UFOs and Horus, the guide into the afterlife. My first introduction to the significance of the Horus mythology came from my mentor, Arthur M. Young inventor of the Bell helicopter, author of The Reflexive Universe, as well as The Geometry of Meaning, The Bell Notes, Nested Time. I owe a great deal to Arthur Young. One of his key insights, and it's an insight associated with the god Horus, is the idea of the descent of spirit into matter and then the turning point whereby matter rises up to the realm of spirit itself. This is an important archetypal process, a process that Arthur Young saw at every level of the physical world including the realm of mythology. The myth of Horus itself exemplifies this very important cosmological principle. Of course, to be fair, the myth of Horus isn't the only myth that expresses this principle. One finds it in every single myth of a dying god who is reborn, whether it's Jesus Christ of the Christians, or Inanna of the ancient Sumerians, or Horus of the Egyptians. Horus is the hawk god. You can see him in this image providing protection and wisdom to the Pharaoh. In Egyptian mythology, Horus is actually the rebirth of the god Osiris. In Egyptian mythology, Osiris is the king of the underworld, the god of paradise, one might say, the god of death. He's portrayed as a mummy, a mummy in green, a green mummy wrapped in white. The myth goes that Horus was once a great king of Egypt and uh, was married to Isis, the great goddess who was his wife, and they ruled. But Osiris's brother, Set, the god of the desert, the god who is sometimes depicted as a jackal, was jealous, uh, and he murdered Osiris. And he took Osiris and uh, chopped his body into pieces of meat and scattered them throughout the Nile. Isis, however, was a great goddess, and she located every piece of her beloved Osiris, her husband, and she reassembled the pieces. And the penis was the last piece, I think, that she reassembled. And then she converted herself into a bird. She landed on top of uh, Osiris's penis and gave birth to the god Horus, the hawk god. I actually have in my possession here 
in my house in Albuquerque, a sarcophagus, an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus, approximately 3,500 years old, dating back to the era of Moses. It was found in the Sinai Peninsula during the Israeli occupation, but it's a tiny sarcophagus. It's a sarcophagus for a hawk because the Egyptians revered the hawk as embodiments of the god Horus. And you can see in this depiction from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the deceased has to pass through the 14 gods at the top of the image to uh, let them know that his heart is pure and innocent and without sin, regardless of uh, whether he committed sins or not. In the uh, physical world, his heart was pure. Then he gets led to the weighing of the heart against the feather of truth. And you can see in this depiction that the heart in a little jar is lighter than the feather of truth. And so then, Horus escorts the deceased into the paradise of Osiris. So, Horus is a god of the underworld. I myself had a very unusual personal encounter with Horus. Uh, it was under the influence of ayahuasca. It was over 20 years ago. I've only taken ayahuasca once. It was a, a profound experience for me. Uh, I've used many other psychedelics, but uh, the ayahuasca was unique. And at the height of that experience, I was filled with a deep sense of Horus. Who was Horus? And I just, it was as if I was in ancient Egypt in a temple of Horus chanting, Oh, Horus is the most beautiful of gods. There is none like Horus in terms of beauty. So, I have this personal connection for what it's worth. I don't want to make much of it, but I do want to point out, if you were to look at my first book, The Roots of Consciousness, published in 1975, you'll see on the title page, and I'm showing you right now, the image of the hawk, and that hawk is Horus. This was, of course, long before I had my ayahuasca experience. Why was Horus such a central figure in the book that I wrote and that was published in 1975? The reason is that even then, I was aware of a series of synchronicities involving Horus. And it begins, interestingly enough, with Uri Geller and Andrea Puharich, who wrote about him in the book Uri, the first book about Uri Geller, which went into some detail about aspects of Geller's life and career that are not often discussed or remembered anymore. It is that Geller's abilities were first awakened, as I recall, he was a child living in Cyprus when he had a UFO encounter, a brilliant light. Subsequently, Puharich writes in Uri about the hawk figure. He talks about being with Uri, witnessing UFOs. Puharich writes in his book Uri that when he traveled to Israel with Uri Geller, he was accompanied by a psychologist from Wisconsin named Ila Zebel, who was a witness to these UFO sightings. 
And I followed up with her and uh, she verified that indeed what Buharic had written was true. There is a scene in the book in which Buharic talks about being in Tel Aviv on a hotel balcony. I think it was called the Sharon Hotel. And uh, they're out looking at the balcony uh, over the ocean there, uh, or the Mediterranean, I should say. There are, um, I don't know, they're high up, maybe on the 10th floor or something like that, when a hawk appears and stares Puharich right in the eye. And he felt such a connection then, he said, he understood he was looking into the eyes of an alien force. And later on, Puharich is with Uri in the same hotel when a hawk feather drifts down. Uri picks it up and looks up towards the sky. At that moment, he says he sees a large UFO right over their hotel. Puharich looked up and didn't see it, but he says, I acknowledge that Uri saw what he said he saw. On at least three occasions, it's reported that Uri Geller told people that if they want to understand the power that works through him, the psychokinetic power, the spoon-bending power, for example, that uh, he has demonstrated all over the world. And um, we don't know how many young people, children in particular, they were called mini Gellers back in that day, would see him on television or hear him on the radio and report that in their own homes, spoons were bending. Watches that hadn't worked for years were starting to run. What is the power behind that? The power that was somehow bestowed upon Uri Geller through the intervention of what we call, in our ignorance, UFOs. Uri said, look into my eyes and you can see that power. Now, my good friend, Saul Paul Sirag, who has been interviewed many times on the original Thinking Aloud channel and on the new Thinking Aloud channel, was one of those individuals. And when he looked into Uri Geller's eyes, what he saw was Geller's whole face transformed into that of a hawk. Interestingly enough, Andrea Puharic had the same experience looking into Geller's eyes and seeing him transform into the image of the god Horus. A third person also had that experience of looking into Uri Geller's eyes and seeing his face transform into that of a hawk. It was Ray Stanford. I know every time I bring up Uri Geller, I hear from viewers who say, he's a fraud, look what happened to him on the Johnny Carson show which is sort of ridiculous. It's assuming that Geller is supposed to be accurate, or not only accurate, but effective 100% of the time. It's as if you were to expect Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player of his era, to hit a home run every time he comes to bat. Actually, Babe Ruth struck out more often than he hit home runs, and the same thing is true in the psychic realm. So, the fact that Uri Geller apparently was unsuccessful in producing psychokinesis while he was on the Johnny Carson show some 50 years ago is 
as far as I'm concerned, completely irrelevant uh, with regard to the scientific evaluation of his abilities. I have had personal encounters with Uri Geller, enough to convince me that regardless of what he may do on stage as a performer, that uh, the psychic abilities that he demonstrated were very real. For example, I mentioned my friend, Saul Paul Sirag, who looked into Geller's eyes and saw his face transform into that of a hawk. Uh, Geller was known for being able to take a, a bean like a mung bean, hold it in the palm of his hand so that everybody can witness it and before their eyes, and I've witnessed this, the bean sprouts as if time is being accelerated. So, you can actually watch that bean open up in a sprout form in a matter of seconds, actually. Well, Saul Paul had the idea to uh, run a little experiment of his own. So, one day, uh, he surprised Geller. He was with Geller working on a magazine article at the time and he handed Geller a bean sprout. And he told Geller, make the movie run backwards. Uri Geller closed his fist over that sprout for a few seconds. And when he opened up his hand, there was a mung bean, not a bean sprout at all. And this is a very interesting demonstration because Geller had no idea it was coming. But it suggests that amongst the other powers associated with uh, his remarkable abilities, something about being able to reverse time in a localized area inside the palm of his hand is amongst those that I would associate with the uh, archetype of Horus. Now, do I think that Horus is a self-aware entity, a, a deity, a god who uh, exists in the uh, Egyptian heavens? Actually not. I'm really not a religious believer, but I like the application of the notion of Jungian archetypes. I think of the Horus archetype as, as an expression of the source of consciousness itself, the ground of being that we all share. One might call it mind at large. Yes, the Horus archetype is an expression of mind at large, just as you are, just as I am. But it is an expression associated with the afterlife. It is an expression associated with psychic powers. It is an expression associated with UFOs. And for that reason, I find it very meaningful and fascinating. Ray Stanford is the twin brother of the parapsychologist Rex Stanford. When they were children, Ray and Rex, teenagers actually, when they were teenagers, Ray and Rex experienced a profound UFO encounter. So profound, in fact, that the two teenagers co-authored a book about their experience called Look Up. As a result of that experience, Rex Stanford went into parapsychology. In fact, when I attended my first convention of the Parapsychological Association in 1973, 
Rex Stanford was the president of the association. He gave his presidential address and it was called, Are We Shamans or Are We Scientists? And he argued that we must be scientists. We shouldn't let our shamanistic abilities interfere with our research. In other words, if we're testing a hypothesis, it would be wrong to use shamanistic abilities in order to ensure that the outcome favored our cherished hypothesis. That would contaminate the interpretation of the data. So, we should avoid in every way we can taking the path of shamanism. Ironically, Ray Stanford chose the path of shamanism. He became a, a great psychic. In that era, he was regarded as possibly the heir to the uh, one might say the psychic throne, uh, metaphorically, of Edgar Cayce. He was channeling extraterrestrials. He also became a uh, researcher, uh, an early researcher using advanced uh, electronic technology and instruments to track UFOs. This is back in the 1970s. He set up an organization called Project Starlight International and it was well financed. They had a large piece of land. They created flashing lights on the uh, surface of that land to attract UFOs and they had all sorts of uh, electronic monitors and telescopes scopes. And uh, Ray, as a matter of fact, to this day has a collection of UFO photos, important UFO photos that have been written about in uh, one book, Ex Descending, written by Ray's uh, close friend, uh, Lambright. But yet, there's another odd synchronicity associated with Horace and Ray Stanford. And I'm going to show you the cover of Analog Magazine that came out right about the same time that all this information concerning UFOs and hawks and the god Horace was, was coming out. Uh, you can see on the cover of Analog Magazine a painting illustrating the main story that appeared in this issue called the Horus Errand. And it shows you uh, a man named Stanford wearing a um, spacesuit and a helmet that is designed uh, very much in the motif of the Egyptian god Horus. Horus was regarded as a guide into the paradise realm of Osiris by the ancient Egyptians. And in this science fiction story, the main character of the story, Stanford, is required to use his psychic abilities to guide a deceased wealthy man into his next incarnation. And in the story, incidentally, he gets lost. Here's where the synchronicities become really complex because that cover artwork was painted by an artist named Kelly Fries an artist who worked for NASA, for example, designing the uh, patches for uh, one of the original Skylab missions. It turns out, uh, friends of mine, Alan Vaughn, a great psychic, uh, knew Kelly Freeze and reached out to him and uh, learned from him that he had had a reading from the psychic Ray Stanford. Not that it influenced uh, the story at all because the story was written um, by a, a different writer completely. 
in a sense, I think the god Horus was associated with my COVID experience. And the reason I say that is because just a few days before I realized I had COVID, there was a hawk. Uh, around our house. In fact, my stepson Lewis took several pictures of it. It was so prominent in this neighborhood. I'm showing you one of those pictures right now. And then we discovered a pigeon. Well, it was no longer a pigeon. All that was left of the pigeon were feathers and, and feet. A hawk had apparently killed this pigeon in our yard and eaten everything, just left the feathers. I took it as an omen that I should be uh, aware that something was about to happen, the, uh, something dangerous, as a matter of fact. To compound matters, the hawk actually slammed into a window in my bedroom. <laughs> I think it happened right after the hawk ate the pigeon because it appears that it flew up into the window and regurgitated as it hit the window, uh, and as you can see in this photograph. So, once again, the hawk is trying very hard to get my attention. And as I say, I took it as a warning that there was something dangerous was about to happen. Yes, and that's when I discovered I would contracted COVID. But shortly thereafter, I began meditating. I began uh, thinking about the significance of the hawk of Horus, the most beautiful of gods. And I was filled with this radiant light, a powerful healing energy. In fact, it was probably more powerful healing energy than anything I had ever experienced along those lines. And I like to practice sending healing energy as much as I can. But this was at another level. And then, to my uh, pleasure, the COVID just lifted. It went away so fast. Uh, I was surprised and everybody around me was surprised as well. So, I think there is a healing component to Horus. But to be honest, Horus is also a god of war. You see, after he was reborn, after Isis assembled the pieces of Osiris's body that had been tossed into the Nile, after she uh, had sex with the penis <laughs> of the dead Osiris, after she gave birth to Horus, Horus then had to avenge the killing of his father, Osiris. And Horus engaged in a lengthy battle with Set, which is uh, described in detail in the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic literature. Horus is battling Set, and the two of them, Horus and Set, engage in sex as part of, of their battle. So, the uh, Egyptian mindset is fascinating in this regard that uh, one might say that Horus is a great warrior and a lover of all things, including his enemies. Perhaps that's why Horus is the most beautiful of gods. What's in all of this for you? Well, keep an eye out for hawks. See how they are interacting in your life. But more important, I think the lesson of Horus, the Horus archetype, reminds me to embrace all of reality. I'd like to leave you with a poem. It came to me in a dream in the middle of the night. I've described it in a previous In Presence video, and I'm going to 
link to it right now. If you have a laptop or desktop computer, you'll be able to link to InPresence0038, in which I recite two poems that came to me in a dream. And the second of these two poems was one when I was in Egypt, and it describes the great myth of the birth of Horus. So, <laughs> Horus has been in my dreams as, as well. And as such, I regard the archetype of Horus with joy and with reverence. And I'll leave you with all of this information for you to digest. Thank you so much for being with me. And thank you for being with us. 